0: Like, man, I would love to interview him if Marcus were a guest on Toe. Maybe he would be a fan of the CTMU. Maybe he would be a cast sympathizer. I'll leave that up to you. Dive into the philosophies of Marcus Aurelius today with the book that Ryan Holiday said is the greatest book ever written. Meditations is available from Penguin Random House at prh.com slash meditations. All right. Hello, Toe listeners. Kurt here. That silence is missed sales. Now, why? It's because you haven't met Shopify, at least until now. Now that's success, as sweet as a solved equation. Join me in trading that silence for success with Shopify. It's like some unified field theory of business. Whether you're a bedroom inventor or a global game changer, Shopify smooths your path. From a garage-based hobby to a bustling e-store, Shopify navigates all sales channels for you. With Shopify powering 10% of all U.S. e-commerce and fueling your ventures in over 170 countries, your business has global potential. And their stellar support is as dependable as a law of physics. So don't wait. Launch your business with Shopify. Shopify has award-winning service and has the internet's best converting checkout. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com theories. All lowercase, that's shopify.com theories. Part of the goal of this channel is to go in-depth with intellectuals, not particularly concerned with whether or not the audience will follow along, because I believe that... It's more interesting at the edges of the fractal than it is in the simple middle. Because of that, as well as the fact that there are certain academics that don't get as much press as we think that they should, my colleagues and I started a nonprofit called the Drachma Institute, where we interview postdocs, PhDs, as well as professors, transcribe the interviews, put in the requisite citations, and then subsequently get it published in a peer-reviewed journal. The following is an interview with Professor Meryl Kint, who I think is revolutionizing her field by developing a treatment for treatment-resistant phobias and PTSD, which effectively utilizes a common beta blocker in just one or two sessions. And the effects seem to be permanent. Again, please subscribe to the Drachma Institute if you'd like more videos like this. This is just a reposting from that channel. The next interview would likely be with someone named Peter Gray, who's an evolutionary psychologist on the concept of unschooling. Enjoy. We're here with Meryl Kint of the University of Amsterdam, and she is a professor in fear extinction, if I'm not mistaken, or at least that's what she studies. So professor, can you give us an overview of your Fear extinction research?
1: Yeah, that is a, this is a long story, so I don't know uh, uh, yeah, how much time you have, but uh, I think I have to give you a bit of a background information, otherwise it's really difficult to, to understand uh, the research program and, and why we changed actually uh, our approach from the traditional um, approach that is taken to, to tackle uh, irrational fears. Uh, for fear uh, and anxiety disorders and also post-traumatic stress disorder, cognitive behavioral therapy is the most effective treatment. And even though it is effective, there are also many patients that do not profit from the treatment. But the, the, yeah, the, um, What is really a problem is the high uh, relapse rate. So even after successful treatment, there are many patients that yeah, show uh, a relapse. And, um, yeah, this, this idea of relapse after cognitive behavioural treatment can be understood by um, behavioural neuroscience uh, research. So I will briefly explain that. So to understand the mechanisms of change and also uh, cognitive behavior therapy, we use the fear conditioning paradigm. Uh, this is laboratory research that can be done in rodents but also in humans. So please interrupt me if you don't understand me. So
0: cognitive behavioral therapy, as far as I know, is something like you're afraid of a stimulus. Let's let's say it's rats or mice. Then you have progressive exposure over the course of weeks, maybe even months. So that is, how far can you go to a rat? Can you go nine meters? And then they're like, that's, that's the most. You're like, how about 8.5? Like, ah, uh, okay. Great, great job, great job. Next day, it's like, can you do eight meters instead of 8.5? They're like, okay. And then, and then some, and that takes weeks and weeks and weeks. Yeah. And what you're saying is there are a couple downsides to this cognitive, the traditional cognitive behavioral therapy. One is that the long amount of time it takes. And then, two is that even when you're supposedly cured, something traumatic can happen again that can trigger you back to being at baseline, baseline fear level where you were before. Okay.
1: So uh, this was very well explained, and the so the idea is that we know from so we have an experimental um, uh, model to understand um, exposure treatment or cognitive behavior treatment, and and this is so we can learn, for instance, uh, rats um, by presenting them a neutral stimulus, a tone, which is followed by a painful stimulus, a shock, and then after a couple of learning trials, they so they if we only present them the new, originally neutral tone they react with a freezing response. So that means that what we call a fear memory has been formed, which is an association between the originally neutral stimulus, the tone and the shock. And that when they are only presented to the tone, they respond as if they're also presented. They expect also to be presented to a shock, even though they are not uh, exposed to a shock anymore. And then you can also extinguish the fear by repeatedly exposing them to the tone without a shock. And then after many, many trials, you see a gradual decline of fear. But then if you just wait a couple of weeks or you change the context, then it's very easy to uh, trigger the fear response again. So you see very easily a return of fear. And we know from the animal uh, research that this can be explained that extinction learning, even though it's a very effective procedure to um, reduce the learned fear response, it does not erase the original fear memory. So the fear memory remains intact and new, a new sort of extinction memory is formed that competes for behavioral control with the original fear memory, but the original fear memory is extremely strong and very often wins from the extinction memory and that this explains actually the return of fear so until the um yeah around the well 2000 or so it was a sort of accepted view that we can never change the fear memory and the best thing that we can do is actually forming a new extinction memory and all the new approaches that tries to improve the cognitive behavior treatment was actually (coughs) aimed to Strengthen or enhance the extinction memory. So, after my PhD at the University of Amsterdam, I moved to Maastricht University and did also my clinical training. So, I saw many patients with fear and phobias and post traumatic stress disorder. I was well known with the literature, also with the neuroscience literature. And I was sort of for years thinking, well, how can we somehow mislead our brain and sort of weaken the fear memory itself? Would that be possible? And then uh, I discovered early, I think in 2002 or three, three indeed, because it was the year that the paper of Grim Nader appeared, the paper by Grim Nader um, showing that it might be possible to change the underlying or to weaken the underlying fear memory. And uh, so what they did in, uh, in rodents, they first learned this um, fear, by presenting the rodents with a tone and a shock, uh, and then testing them a couple of days later, you see an expression of the fear memory by freezing a response if they are only presented to the tone. And what they did is instead of an extinction procedure, they reactivated the fear memory by presenting them to a single tone and then injected the animals with a protein synthesis inhibitor anisomycin a very toxic drug which you cannot use in humans but they did so in in the rodents and then if they tested the animals a couple of hours later there was still a very strong expression of the fear memory but then 24 hours later the fear was almost gone as if there was no longer an expression of the fear memory yeah this was really a sort of this Changed our whole idea of memory because until then we thought that after memory is consolidated So maybe can uh, dive a little bit into the basics of uh, neuroscience on on memory So if if organisms learn something and you test them for instance within an hour We speak of short-term memory. So if they have learned and memorized what they well if there's a memory of what they learned There's a short-term memory and in order to transfer the short-term memory into a long-term memory, uh, protein synthesis is necessary. And if you block the protein synthesis, there is, it is not possible to form a long-term memory. So then if you test the animals, for instance, 24 hours later, you don't see any expression anymore. But the sort of accepted view or dominant view in the um, memory literature was that After memory has been consolidated, we cannot change the original memory uh, trace. So the only way to change our memory is by forming new memory traces that interfere with the original memory trace. So this seminal study by Grim Nader showed that it may be possible even after memory consolidation to change the original memory trace and that if you reactivate the memory, that the resaving of the memory requires again, protein synthesis. And this means that if you interfere with these processes, with the protein synthesis required for the rewriting of the previously formed memory, then we may be able to change fear memory itself.
0: Right, and just to interrupt, if if I'm understanding correctly, you make a mouse or rat or whatever it is extremely afraid of some stimulus, let's call it a tone in this case, then you can make it afraid again by repeating the stimulus, and afterwards, you inject it with a neurotoxic, I believe it's just toxic in general, but I don't know, neurotoxic chemical at least, that prevents this protein from synthesizing or or inhibits this protein in some way, the one that would re- that would entrench this memory, and then it would eliminate the fear response because that memory is no longer being fortified. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. Almost. So what happens is if you, and I can come later to that because it really depends on very specific circumstances whether the memory trace is labelized so if you retrieve a memory it's not always the case that the memory trace is becomes in a sort of label or destabilized phase but if so then after destabilization it requires protein synthesis to be restabilized again and normally that is what happens so memory reconsolidation is a way of updating the memory so if the memory should stay the same, should should be kept if the environment does not change. But if the environment changes, the memory should be changed a bit, because while well, the whole idea of memory is that it is a sort of, well, it makes us very adaptive, because it helps us to, to better respond to the environment. So if the environment... Uh, does not change, the memory should also not change. If it changes, then the memory can either be changed by forming new memory traces or by updating the original memory trace.
2: So, Would you please elaborate a little bit on how you arrived at the idea that taking these beta blockers after being exposed to the stimulus is what's efficacious as opposed to before?
1: So after reading this seminal study by Grim Nader that uh, appeared in... 2000, so at the turn of the century, I became really thrilled because I thought if we can translate this finding to the human field, this might sort of implicate that we really can sort of treat people with irrational fears and uh, anxiety disorders, and maybe also with post-traumatic stress disorder, which is much more effective uh, intervention. And this could be a solution for the high relapse rate. But the anisomycin, the protein synthesis can clearly not be used in humans. Uh, this is very toxic and also what we can do is uh, inject the drug directly into the brain into the amygdala uh, the, the 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 fear center of the brain and that is what for instance karim Nader did and also many other uh, uh, animal researches but uh, in 2004 and also in a little bit before that year there were a couple of studies testing uh, the same ID, but then with propanolol, the noradrenergic beta blocker. So we only give 40 milligrams and only once is not very, clearly not very toxic for humans. In our first study, we gave propanolol actually before the memory reactivation and not to dampen the fear response, but we reasoned that if you reactivate the fear memory, then the processes of memory destabilization and restabilization probably start immediately following the memory retrieval, and it takes between one and two hours before propanolol has passed the blood-brain barrier and reaches a peak level. So we thought if we give it afterwards, we may miss the window. But then, of course, if you give it before memory reactivation, you never know whether it somehow interferes with the retrieval. So that was why in later studies, so it worked very well, and then in later studies we always now give it after the memory reactivation. But we don't use it to dampen the fear response, but noradrenaline as a neurotransmitter is indirectly involved in the protein synthesis necessary for memory consolidation and also for memory reconsolidation. So this is the reason why we can also work with propanolol instead of working with protein synthesis blockers.
3: Would you say then that the difference between your approach and cognitive behavioral therapy is the focus on the recollection of memory and the destruction of the initial fear memory, as opposed to trying to build barrier memories that would inhibit that original fear response?
1: Yeah, indeed, the difference is that instead of um, building uh, new memories or trying to control huh, the emotional memory and the emotional responses, we try to, to yeah, mitigate the, uh, the root of the disorder, so to weaken the fear memory itself. Procedurally, it's also very different because exposure treatment, yeah, the idea is that it actually targets more the cognitive processes, so the expectancies, It's a a longer process, so by repeatedly uh, people exposing to the feared cue, they gradually uh, learn that uh, what they fear is is irrational, whereas we expose our um, participants only very briefly, between two and five minutes to the feared cue. Uh, So we don't target the cognitive system and what is interesting, what we see is first, we see a behavior change. So we so we reduce the defensive reflex, or in phobics, we uh, change the avoidance behavior. And right, when then you say first,
0: do you see the change? Are you talking about after you give the beta blocker and then you wait 20 minutes? Are you talking about that or the next know, day?
1: we Actually, we found and we published that paper in uh, 2018. Uh, when you test them 12 hours later, On the same day, you still see the same fear expression, but only after a night of sleep, uh, we see the uh, sudden, very abrupt reduction of fear. So instead of the gradual decline of the fear response, it's uh, delayed, so after 24 hours, but very um, abrupt. And that, especially when, when... I treat uh patients and, and it is a successful treatment, it's every time feels like magic because yeah, normally you see a sort of you are there when you see a sort of gradual change in behavior. And now, first you see during the exposure that people are really has a intense fear response, are sometimes crying and, and panicking, and then if they come back 24 hours later, they are able to... It's not that they're entirely relaxed, uh, but yeah, there's such a huge difference. So that really feels like uh, it cannot be true.
3: I'm curious. You had mentioned the relationship between protein synthesis and fear. It is known that protein synthesis, that this is deeply tied with our genetics the sort of manuscript for the creation of all of our proteins. Do you think it is for this reason that one finds that in epigenetics, that there are inherited fears? Does that have a connection to your research?
1: Yeah, no, I, I'm, what do you mean with inherited fears? Because I'm a so, bit, I mean, that was also one of the questions that the fear of snakes, I mean, the fears that we treat is, of, is are the irrational fears. So not, I mean, of course, I mean, snakes can be dangerous, but there's no reason to be really phobic in the sense that you, that people avoid several places because there could be a snake, whereas there is no snake or, so that is the kind of fear that we treat. Um,
3: there was an article uh, published on, it was an epigenetic study where they, I, I believe they, induced a fear response uh, to rodents at the sound of a bell and they made a very visceral pain uh, for the rodents at the sound of that bell. They then allowed the rodents to uh, have their next generation of offspring and then gave them the sound of that bell. Apparently the rodents were afraid, uh, although never hearing the bell before or feeling tortured at this hearing of the bell, were afraid at the sound of the bell. What is even more amazing is that the generation after the grandchildren, they then gave the sound of the bell and had these rodents afraid. So I'm curious if this link of fear, this this inheritance of fear, has something to do with uh, epigenetic mechanisms on DNA, considering that You were speaking of protein the relation between protein synthesis and fear i don't know if this is a topic i I don't
1: i'm I'm very curious to to read do you remember the authors of the paper
3: i can find it and send it
1: yeah please i don't know but somehow as if there is um indeed a a memory of the fear that is uh, transgressed to the next generation
0: by the way, does this yeah. only work on fear memories like post-traumatic stress disorder? Or, or can it work on people who have innate fears like like we were mentioning before? Some people are afraid of snakes innately. Some people are afraid of blood. No, well, it is, that's more discussed.
1: No, yeah. Well, we tested that because in a fear conditioning procedure, so what we do is uh, we work with pictures and mm, an electric uh, stimulus administered to the wrist, so painful stimulus. So we also use the fear conditioning uh, model in the laboratory. And uh, an innate fear is not the fear, what we call, to the to the learned stimulus, so the picture followed by the shock, but actually the response to the shock itself. And that didn't change. So it's not that we, in that sense, dampen the... That is what but you could expect if you dampen the whole fear system, that people or, or animals don't respond anymore to intrinsically uh, threatening stimuli, like pain or, uh, or a threatening animal. And that's, that this is not what uh, happens. It's really to the learned fears. And you mentioned that
0: what's required is a night's rest in order for your, for your treatment to be effective. Have you measured the quality of someone's sleep to the extinction of the fear?
1: This is what we are currently testing, but unfortunately the, the study, we had to stop with the data collection due to COVID-19. So hopefully we can uh, proceed with our study after the summer. But so this is, so what we did is we controlled for the, for the hours. So because from the animal literature, we learned that there is that reconsolidation is time dependent. Um, so we started first with a pilot study and then we discovered that yeah when you wait five or six hours that there was still such a strong fear expression and we always in all our previous studies we always tested the next day for the effect and and it takes also um, well propanel has a five hour half time value so after 12 hours, it's almost completely out of the body. And, and especially the next day, it's completely gone. So then you are also sure that what you measure can no longer be a propanolol effect. And um, so we piloted first and tested five hours. And then at a certain moment, I asked my postdoc, maybe you could test also 12 hours later on the same day. And we still found such a strong fear response. And then we designed a study where we either did the treatment in the morning, tested them 12 hours later on the same day, and then again the next day, or we treated them in the evening, test also waited 12 hours, but with a night of sleep in between, and then the next day. And we really saw that it was not a time, but a night of sleep. But we did not uh, register the sleep quality. We don't know which phase of the sleep is important. So these are yeah, very interesting next steps. We also tested... Uh, the time window during which we can actually give propanolol, so uh, it was possible to give it one hour after memory activation and it still works, but two hours after memory retrieval then it's really too late. So that also shows that there's a really specific time window that you can target these processes and otherwise you are uh, too late.
3: Can fear extinction work on relatively minor fears? So, for example, um, if someone were to approach, if someone were nervous speaking in front of others, could they use this treatment to get rid of those minor fears?
1: Social fears are, in that sense, not so easy because people. We we did a study uh, in people who have a fear of um, public speaking, and there the treatment was not effective. And the problem in research is then that you, for instance, work with a stand, standard protocol that is already quite difficult for people who uh, suffer from uh, social fears because these fears are generally very idiosyncratic but especially with social fears people very often they their fears actually what other people think for instance and it is really hard to to expose people to that and another issue is that the threat or the anticipated catastrophe does not necessarily happen in a specific time window so if what people fear can happen for instance a year later then a treatment cannot be applied because it really should be in the moment that you trigger the memory and then something they can learn something from from their environment with respect to their fear and there are also many fears i mean when people are, are afraid of of dying very often that that they, this is not something that that's the thing will happen in the near future, but maybe in a year or so. So, are for there, that kind of fears, the treatment is not suitable.
3: Are there other It seems to me that this is almost like a surgical knife, yeah. uh, cognitively speaking, that you are yeah, yeah. removing sectors of fear and of memory. And the more clean cut and defined those fears are, the better they can be removed. Are there other complicating factors in this mental surgery?
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, I agree. I also have called it once in a paper, kind of, sort of, <laughs> as a metaphor, neurosurgery or so. It is in that sense very different from uh, psychotherapy. Uh, yeah, it is in one of your, I think, last questions. Um, because after, so we first showed this, uh, this, this effect in the laboratory in, in dozens of studies, which is a sort of proof of principle. Then we tested it in, uh, people with fear of spiders. And, and then of course I received many questions for people who, who are suffering from uh, crippling fear. So if it's so easier, I can also do it myself, expose myself to the cue, take the pill, and then the fear is gone. But yeah, unfortunately it's, it's not easy because there are many boundary conditions, and this has to do with the idea that if you are exposed to the feared cue, it's not necessarily so that the memory is uh, destabilized. And if the exposure, for instance, is too so, either it is not there's nothing new to be learned, then it is sort of passive retrieval. It could also be that a situation is too new or too different from, from their original fear, and then this is a sort of, can, yeah, um, sort of initiation of the formation of a new memory or of an extinction memory. And whether you target the process of memory reconsolidation is really in between a sort of passive retrieval process. And the formation of a new memory. And the problem is that we do not have a sort of index that we can use to know what is happening in the brain during the memory reactivation. So we only have the behavior, the readout of memory, but the fear reaction is not uh, informative on what happens actually in the brain, on whether it's only a passive retrieval process or whether the memory reconsolidation is triggered. So this is a huge challenge, and our current research is trying to tackle this, this problem, and especially in translating to the clinical uh, practice. So what we do now, uh, so I'm now sitting here in, in my uh, clinic. We opened a, a clinic uh, a year ago where we treat many people with um, Suffering from uh, fears and phobias. So what we do now is partly intuitively so to decide when do we stop? So you expose people yeah, to the to the feared cue. It could be a dog, a, a kitten, a spider, uh, heights, whatever. We'll and then you have kids, okay. How how long should the exposure be? Such that we trigger the so we destabilize the memory, but that it's not too long. Such so that it just becomes already an exposure treatment. And that is, yeah, really uh, a challenge.
0: Okay, something I was thinking about it there are people with childhood traumas and various other anxieties. And I was wondering well, instead of exposing them to whatever stimulus would cause them to feel the extreme fear, given that sometimes that's impractical, especially now during COVID, can they, with tremendous effort, concerted mental effort, just think about? that stimulus, to hallucinate, in a sense, their fear. And, and instead of bringing their fear response up to 10 out of 10, which is what you try to do in your practice, bring it up to four out of 10 because obviously it's not the same as having, let's say, a masked murderer in front of you and you imagining a masked murderer or a person in a mask. Let's say they're, they're afraid of the scream mask from that 90s movie. So they imagine the scream mask, okay. They imagine it and they're, and they're triggering themselves up to four out of 10. Then they take the beta blocker. Now, imagine they do that. Well, First of all, would that work at all? And second of all, if, if let's say it doesn't work, do you imagine it would work if they did that a few times? Your treatment is like one extinction event. Eradicate mm-hmm. that memory from one treatment. But do you imagine this four out of 10 progressively over the course of two weeks, let's say, could bring it down to almost yeah, because- remove that memory, yeah. at least the fear associated with
1: it? Yeah. Uh, first of all, we of course it is not necessary so that even if it works that it is, I mean, memory, emotional memory that underlies anxiety disorders and especially post-traumatic stress disorder is not a sort of single memory trace, but it is a network. So you could imagine that for PTSD that you, even if it works, that you weaken the network, but that you need more uh, treatment sessions to really dismantle the underlying, uh, emotional memory. We uh, have have uh, applied uh, the uh, reconsolidation intervention already to to people suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, and this is, in general, the way. Also, yeah, if if you do if you use the standard cognitive behavior treatment, you always work with uh, imaginary exposure, and the idea is that the trauma memory is actually the trigger, like in dog phobia, the dog trauma memory triggers an overwhelming emotional responses and people are afraid of being overwhelmed by their emotional responses, and they feel like they cannot handle it they will become crazy losing control whatever so the reason to go back to the trauma is actually usually when people have intrusive memories they try to avoid it because they don't want to expose themselves to the trauma memory because it triggers very intense, um, difficult emotions. And what you do in treatment then is you try to do that, of course, supporting the patient. And, and uh, if you do it right, then it triggers indeed, the, and yeah, very strong emotional re- reactions. And then they can experience that they do.
0: Hear that sound? Now are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a one dollar per month trial period at Shopify.com slash theories. All lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash theories.
1: Not die or that they are not going crazy or whatever. So this is then a sort of prediction error or new experience that may. Um, destabilize the trauma memory and and then a propanolol could work. There is a, 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 in one of the, I don't know whether you have seen the uh, documentary by uh, Lana Wilson, A Cure for Fear. So one of the four parts is a night in Kabul. uh, uh, And this was a trauma treatment. And there we used to um, strengthen the memory activation also a, a, a virtual reality environment to make it a bit stronger. To, so to present him with some cues that could sort of, yeah, enhance the reactivation of the uh, specific trauma memory. But this is not always necessary. Sometimes people are very good in, in, um, in uh, remembering the uh, trauma.
0: Razor blades are like diving boards. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus, one hundred free blades when you head to h e n s o n s h a v i n g dot com slash everything and use the code everything.
2: Just as a follow up question, um, do you think psychedelics could have any any role in all this? Do you think it can perhaps enhance the effect? Let's say if the if the memory is not is is at is at the level of let's say four out of ten perhaps with a psychedelic experience, this can get enhanced. And, and that way, maybe we can do something about it, reactivating that memory. Or is it too too much of a novel experience for someone who may, maybe hasn't done psychedelics before? What are your speculations? You know,
1: on? Yeah, well, there are some some promising studies using MDMA, for instance. So I think the idea, what is important, of course, is that, that the research has a sort of at least plausible hypothesis on the working mechanism that's in my view important, and whereas you very often see in in this field is that sort of drugs are just tested and so see just observe whether it has an effect or not well wow, that's not the way I like to work, but there are i mean psychedelics could work by um they could help to destabilize the memory, and yeah. So and and then it is easier to yeah to to either and then maybe not I I don't think that you should then work maybe with propanolol because then it could be also an interaction between the two at least you should make sure that it is not problematic uh, but there are also behavior of course imagery scripting is a good way to to change the trauma memory and then you could do that in combination with
2: yes I would ask questions but... the memory yeah yeah right it it, it will be really interesting to, to do something in conjunction. So perhaps we can maybe talk a little bit about that down, down the road.
3: That would be great.
1: Yeah, but, but then the great. difference is because sometimes, I mean, cognitive behavior treatment is just combined with, um, with drugs, but then it's only, I mean, drugs that also dampen the emotion response. Whereas the intriguing aspect here is that we use a drug uh, not to dampen the emotion response, but to really interfere with the yeah, learning and memory processes, which is right. a very different way of using a drug.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. How far do these unlearning processes go? Is it possible to remove disgust or happiness, for example, or let's say a fond memory of something, the opposite of fear? Are these future paths for this research? Mm-hmm or is it limited only within the scope of the phobic? Yeah.
1: Certainly not limited to fears and phobias because it has also been tested for uh, in the area of addiction. Uh, also with propanolol, by the way, in animals. Okay. We've got to explore
0: that. Can you explain how do you test this with addiction you expose someone to something they're addicted to and then give them the proprenol. Uh,
1: well there are not many studies uh, in in successful studies in humans but in animals it is um, uh, possible that you can yeah first learn animals to become addicted to cocaine or other uh, other drugs so addiction is also an associative memory like fears so there's a cue and an, and an um yeah approach behavior because the animal is addicted to it and um, so in fears we aim to change the avoidance behavior and in addiction you yeah then you should try to to change the approach behavior so the other way and that is possible it is i think but it has not been i mean we are now in a pilot phase, uh, testing, um, people who are addicted to, uh, cigarettes. Uh, but yeah.
0: Okay. If, can you, it works can you explain to me well. how, so let's say someone's addicted to cigarettes or cocaine there. If they see the stimulus, the cigarettes or the cocaine, it triggers them. They want to smoke or they want to have cocaine again. Now, if we're making an analog to the fear response, the fear response situation is you provoke them intensely and then give them yeah. the beta blocker. Now, in the addiction response, do you get them to smoke the cigarettes intensely and then the cocaine, or the cocaine intensely, and then, well, obviously that's illegal, but, and then uh, give that, them the is, beta blocker? Yeah. Or do you just make them feel like, oh, I need to be, I want to have this so much, yeah. then remove it, take the beta blocker?
1: It's this last, uh, <laughs> and that makes it very hard. So the, uh, because, so we first, years ago, we already tested this with uh, students that wanted to quit smoking. And then we, so we asked them to bring their favorite cigarettes to the lab. And they thought, well, I'm smoking my last cigarette. And then they had to give the cigarette to the experimenter. And we were a bit afraid that that the participants would sort of (laughs) clap the experimenter in his face or whatever. But that didn't happen. But the treatment also didn't work. And we realized afterwards, yeah, because then it is a sort of passive process in terms of the memory. Because someone else decide for you, even though the participants were motivated to quit, the, it was not that they, I mean, the experimenter decided that they were not allowed to smoke their own cigarettes. So we think indeed what you said, somehow we have to trigger the urge to smoke and then they have to decide themselves. So they really should be engaged in it. Okay. Now, now I stop.
0: See, this is why it's Nobel Prize winning, because if this works, this can work for addiction is a huge, huge topic. This can work for porn addiction or drug addiction
1: yeah. or
0: any form of addiction.
1: It's true. I, I mean, don't know. I don't know the
0: limitations, but I'm just surmising.
1: No, yeah, well, the, 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 I mean, the translation is so difficult. So uh, and there are so I mean, it really depends on so many subtle uh, factors whether it works or not that is I mean as a scientist that is really I mean I love that because it's it will never be boring uh, but I'm I'm at working at two sides so I'm a neuroscientist but I'm also working in clinical science so I also see the yeah how difficult it is to bridge these two fields and yeah we are working on it with a team of uh, PhD students and postdocs uh, there are also, uh, I mean, there are several labs in the world that basically work with animal models. We can learn a lot from them because they can do things that we can't do. I mean, they really study the uh, microbiology in the brain and we can't study that in humans. But uh, yeah, the, the, it, it looks easier, I think, than it is. And this ha- really has to do so, so, because these memories, these emotional memories are so strong also for addiction, and they are, um, uh, I mean, if an emotional memory in general is already strong, and then they are engraved almost in the physical architecture of the brain, especially because people are addicted for years, they have experienced their addiction in many different contexts, so it's not easy to destabilize the memory, but yeah,
3: now that if we are on the
1: well, then we should be able to change it.
3: Now that we are on the cusp of removing fears, I think it might be important to ask: Is there an important reason why people feel fear? Is what would be the ramifications of a society that has gone through with this research and eliminated not only fear but, as you have mentioned, addiction, disgust, uh, even pleasure towards certain things that are otherwise unsavory? What would the
1: ramifications be? I think that one that fear is one of the most uh, important emotions across species um because it's yeah it definitely helped uh, us to survive so not only the um, it's crucial for the survival of the individual but also for for our group um it has also been how, i like how that far crazy, down the- sorry
3: I was going to ask as a follow-up to that: How far down the phylogenetic tree does fear go? You know, yeah. how conserved is this emotion?
1: Yeah. Well, it depends a bit on the definition of fear. But if if we consider defensive reflexes as a sign of fear, then all animals, I think, exhibits signs of fear. But I would say a society without fear, well, would not be a society anymore. Um, it's also, for instance, and and the fear of losing your offspring, it's very fundamental for our intense tendency to care for our babies. But without fear, I mean, people. Should, I I I mean, I think social behavior is also dependent on on fear.
2: Sorry, if I may, if I just. Briefly go back to the idea of psychedelics because that that area really fascinates me overall. Uh, is there a particular reason uh, you brought up MDMA specifically as opposed to let's say the other ones such as you know LSD mushrooms? Is are there any do, do you do identify anything specifically uh, unique mm-hmm. to MDMA that is not present in the others or?
1: well at least i know I'm, I'm i'm not so familiar with all the studies i know that there are a couple of studies that used mdma successfully in ptsd and and it's, it's it targets the nmda receptors and nmda receptors are involved in the memory destabilization so that was actually the reason that i mentioned uh, mdma
0: well, as far as i can understand the mdma would be more for the cognitive behavioral therapy route where you just Get them to relive their memory and then now with the mdma they can't feel the fear as much in fact they might attach positive emotions to it mm-hmm. whereas with your treatment it's like please don't attach any positive emotions to th- feel the fear so that's why with lsd that's completely different lsd is not like you're, you're only experiencing euphoria if you're you can have the most intense anxiety attacks of your entire life so do you imagine the treatment with lsd would be i, w- I would imagine it'd be much different than mdma i would, I would imagine that lsd or mushrooms would be more in line with your treatment rather than MDMA, which is cognitive behavioral therapy. A cognitive behavioral therapy accelerator is MDMA. Your treatment mm-hmm. accelerator might be LSD. That's what I surmise, but I want to know what you think.
1: Yeah, I agree. Uh, because, uh, yeah, because MDMA uh, also triggers, an I think, an oxytocin eh, release if I, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um. So it could be sort of somehow inhibits the, um, yeah, it could You're allowed to speculate. Two, Don't worry. It, it could work in two directions because it could also help if you feel safe and attached, for instance, to your therapist, it could also help to dive into your, also in, into the trauma memory and into the more difficult emotions. So in that sense, MDMA could also work because if you are too, if the emotions are too strong it could also at a certain point sort of yeah inhibit of really going into into it and feeling it
0: the documentary you mentioned is called cure of fear is that correct yeah okay i recommend everyone watch this this i watched it i found it endlessly fascinating it's what turned me on to your research to begin with is there something else you do afterwards after the post fear stimulus other than just giving them the beta blocker? Do you talk them down? Do you say everything will be okay? Is there, or is it as, is it as simple as expose yourself to the fear? 10 out of 10, take the beta blocker five minutes after that, or or pretty much immediately after that and go along with your day, have a night's nice rest. Is there something else that's missing?
1: No. So, so I mean the, the exposure is, it's, it's, it's is not so easy i mean that is really difficult people are generally not able to do it themselves because they really need support to actually do it because the fear response itself triggers an, an, an avoidance response so they want to to escape the situation of course but if they have done so no then they go to a room uh what we do is um, only I, I mean i Briefly reinforce them for what they did so far and then they wait for two hours They relax uh, because we want to make sure that they Don't have another stressful experience that could trigger another noradrenaline Response it could interfere with the effect of the beta blocker
0: Okay, so
1: and then after two hours they go home have a night of sleep and then they come back for a test
0: so you're there, in part, to make sure that they don't have another traumatic experience that worsens it completely. Because I would imagine that this could drive someone insane if they're exposed to 10 out of 10 of fear on something that they're already extremely afraid of.
1: Yeah, so um, so we we try to make sure that they are not re-exposed to, uh, to the feared cue. And sometimes it's difficult. For instance, we also treat people with fear of dogs. And then when they go outside, it could be that they will meet a dog again and... Yeah, because then, because we know that, I mean, that could trigger again the the fear memory. And we don't know, but it makes sense that it then interferes with the treatment effect. So we always make sure if that is the case, that someone will pick them up in the car, that they don't meet a a dog until a night of sleep and then the next day. So we also once treated a a woman with a fear of silverfish and they were at her house. So she was not allowed to sleep in her own house. She (laughs) She booked a hotel and then came back for the test and Then, after this first night, she could go home again to to expose herself to the silverfish fish when she was removed from the fear
0: now now, in this case of the silverfish, was there a traumatic event that happened that made her afraid of the silverfish to begin with because i'll give you an a, a Excuse me for seeming imbecilic or asinine. My fear, I have a fear, and it's of flying insects. I, I despise flying insects. Like, I like dragonflies, it's the only kind, but mosquitoes and bees and black flies, I, I can't even go into the wilderness because of it. So, so practically speaking, I don't have access to you. I'm not in Amsterdam. What can I do? Here in Toronto, alone in my condo, and other people who have fears similar to mine, maybe not flying insects, but what can they do? Obviously, this is not medical advice. But what you what would you, if you could take a no one's going to sue you. What would you, what would you do?
1: Yeah, what I would do is expose you. Then I would first ask you which if if there is an insect that you um, fear most, and then order um, yeah a couple of them or sometimes dozens, and then um, so very often fears So first of all, your first question was actually, is it necessary to have a traumatic experience with the cue that you fear? No. The idea is, at least it is our conceptualization of uh, fear and anxiety disorders that there isn't, we call a fear memory or associative memory that analyzes the fear response. And the fear memory is formed either through direct traumatic experiences, but also very often in an indirect way, just by modeling, because you have seen other people that are afraid of dogs or insects or by information or... Sometimes people really don't know how they developed it, but it is just there. Then if you have a fear, some people have some sort of traumatic experience, because if you have a fear of a specific animal and then you are exposed to the animal that can be experienced as a trauma. Um, For your treatment, then yeah, I would say, well, we should, try to i mean i at first i i should do a sort of interview to know exactly what kind of situation would be terrifying for you like being in a small room for instance with insects or that that they that you that they are on your skin or, or on your feet or whatever okay, so first i'm not of
0: claustrophobic but yes if i was in a, a room that's trapped with a, a thousand mosquitoes i would not i don't i, I also desperate. i dislike buzzing around my ears. So I imagine maybe I can't order mosquitoes. I don't even know how you could do that. Maybe I could just find a YouTube video of mosquitoes around a microphone, put that on, try to imagine myself in a room full of mosquitoes, make my fear response four out of 10 because that's probably the best I could do, then take the beta blocker. Do you imagine something like that would work?
1: No, I don't think so. It's not enough, I think, just hearing it and and not being exposed to the real threat. Yeah, and it is probably to do something because most of the fears in, have to do with not being able to predict, for instance, the, the, the cue that you fear and with not being able to control it. So, with uncontrollability and with unpredictability. And that's why these insects moving fast and somehow, yeah, you feel probably like I, I, I want to control them, I want to control the, the noise or uh, that they come to me and you can't. So, this is really then what you need in the treatment to feel that. Uh, in order to um, target your um, fear memory.
0: So what compelled you to make this documentary, the Cure to Fear documentary?
1: Yeah, first of all, uh, the documentary, there are more documentaries. So first, The Memory Hackers, uh, there's a treatment, uh, was a NOVA documentary, and then there's um, The Science of Fear by uh, Roberto Fredecchia, that is... uh, be afraid, the science of fear. That was broadcasted in Canada, actually, CBS. Um, they approached me, so not uh, vice versa. <laughs> uh, and The same what uh, for Lana Wilson. Uh, but yeah, I think um, to first to uh, educate people that, uh, that, that 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 there are millions of people that suffer from crippling fears and phobias so to 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 teach people that they are not weak or crazy that they have these fears that that is very important but also to educate them about all the mysteries of emotional memory which is i think for everyone a very relevant and intriguing topic
3: Great. Um, I'd like to ask a couple of
2: technical questions, if I may, um, regarding your research. In your illuminating 2009 paper, you briefly discussed two theories, uh, namely, uh, you know, the, there was the storage theory as well as the retrieval theory. One of which you surmised may have caused uh, fear of memory extinction. However, uh, at the time, it was not clear which one was the cause. Would you please? Would you please? A, a little bit elaborate on these theories and furthermore tell us whether 11 years later, now in 2020, do we have a better understanding of the mechanism behind memory extinction from a, let's say, theoretical perspective, or is it still largely a mystery overall?
1: No, well, if, if you only study humans, it is almost, at least very hard, and almost impossible to, to disentangle between the retrieval problem or storage problem, huh? whether you really change the underlying memory trace or whether you, it's difficult, it's more difficult to retrieve it, but maybe it's still there, but you can't just retrieve it. And clinically, I mean, if the retrieval uh, difficulty is, is so huge that you can never retrieve it anymore, then it doesn't make any difference. But theoretically, it's, of course, very interesting. From the animal literature, well, now that we are more and more able to find actually the memory engram in the brain by optogenetics and so on, and that means that you can turn on and off the fear memory, uh, they also showed that the reconsolidation intervention really changed the memory engram. And this suggests at least that it affects the storage the fear memory and that it is not just a, a retrieval issue mm-hmm.
2: okay so from the animal side then it's it's more geared toward the storage aspect yeah but
1: purely based on human uh, research i agree that it, it is actually yeah impossible to uh this entangle the two uh, conceptual frameworks yeah. Right,
2: but yes, there are limitations, unfortunately. And um, going back to the imagery rescripting uh, phenomenon that you had, you, I think you delved deep into it into a recent t- 2019 paper where you discussed you know, the role of re- imagery rescripting in emotional memory. Now, uh, maybe if we can just briefly talk about this a little more just to see w- whether you know, we could utilize imagery rescripting in conjunction with, with let's say, propr- propranolol. Uh, to extend the impact of modifying fear in various settings, for example, online therapies? Like, is that a possibility, do you think? I mean, we I know we, we briefly talked about how the fear has to, you, we have to be in a controlled environment where this has to be properly conducted, but with the introduction of imagery rescripting, do you think we can do anything in, in that regard or or no? We still have certain hard uh, limitations.
1: Mm. Yeah. I think that, for instance, in the, for if, when we um, use the uh, procedure in specific fears and phobias, but we actually ask the uh, participant to approach, for instance, the spider or the dog. And, and then, I mean, usually they would sort of uh, run away because they think if I approach it, then something very bad happens and then they experience that it doesn't happen so this is sort of new something new is a new experience and that's the idea is that this is necessary to open up the memory trace uh, and for trauma memory it could be that especially sometimes you see uh, traumatized people and they went over and over the trauma memory in the trauma story and then it's really hard just by going back to to open up the memory trace and do, and then when we do a little bit of rescripting, that could help to destabilize uh, the memory.
3: Right, so so in a sense it is possible then to do something in conjunction uh, with, because
2: I know in that study you did not introduce beta blockers, right? It was purely
1: yeah, well, yeah. or, so then, so we, we did it. We already, I did this already, so a, a couple of times. Then it's only one session, but I also supervised several, uh, um, so a, a recent uh, huge trial and also in the, in the past trial uh, where we only did imagery scripting, but then it's more like a traditional cognitive behavior treatment and you do sort of weekly uh, sessions, mm-hmm. many sessions in a row.
3: Right, right, right.
1: Yeah.
3: My question on disgust is Is it possible to have a technique for disgust that would eliminate it and mirror the, w- Would it be the same process except as, as fear removal, but instead with a disgust simu- uh, stimulus? So, for example, uh, if someone is completely grossed out by, by blood or by public mm-hmm. toilets, uh, how would they overcome? This, this disgust? Would they do it the same
1: format? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't think sometimes we see uh, people with a fear of spiders, but sometimes they also find the spiders very disgusting. And we have the idea, but we never really tested it, that that the treatment then reduces the fear response, but that the disgust remains uh, intact. I can imagine, though, that if the disgust is... That sometimes, if, for instance, disgust is so strong that people are, yeah, are afraid of the disgust. I mean, to, to a degree, some people have a sort of cheese aversion or so or milk aversion so they have sort of disgust for some smells or and so on and i think well, i don't think that we can treat that but then if people really fear that if they are exposed to something that would trigger such a strong disgust feeling that they will faint or whatever we could treat that so then the disgust is more like what a spider or a dog is for people with uh, animal phobia. I
3: see. Thank you.
0: Now, now, before we wrap up, I have an analogy that I made that I think is completely naive. And, but, but please, I want you to correct it because I couldn't figure out another, a better way of conceptualizing your research as to why beta blockers afterwards works rather than before. So the way that I see it is when you get exposed to fearful stimuli it's as if imagine you have a cabinet behind you and this is an oversimplification and each one of the drawers in the cabinet is a memory it's as if what you've done in the fear example is you've opened up that drawer however if you take the beta blockers before because because memory i believe memory consolidation is highly dependent on beta receptors in your brain that if you take beta blockers that actually interferes with you you formulating memories so if you were to take the beta blocker before, it would be as if you can, you, maybe you open up that drawer, but the rewrite capabilities are not there because the beta receptors for some reason need to be active for the rewrite abilities to be available. Okay. Then you take the beta blockers afterwards because it's not as if the memory gets rewrote. I know this is so convoluted. It's not as if the memory gets rewritten right then. It gets rewritten about two hours later or one hour later. So it's like fierce, it's Fear fear, stimuli. Open up that drawer. Don't rewrite in it. Wait one hour. Then the, then the brain is going to rewrite it. But the brain, one hour from now, looks to the body. How are you feeling? Are you afraid? And then it will rewrite based on that. So that's why if you take a beta blocker afterwards and you're calm, it's like, okay, we're about to rewrite, but now I see you're calm. Let's rewrite it and say calmness let's uh, let's put the hashtag calm on it now is what's wrong with that i'm sure that there's some, there's many that's it, much oh, yeah, stuff there, wrong with it but
1: yeah you said a lot uh first of all i think that the the actual rewriting takes place during sleep um uh, and that's probably the um, there's more work on that probably the phase where uh, when there's no new incoming information that's sort of that for the brain, that is probably the sort of best phase to decide if this is the information that should be kept and this can be forgotten. So that makes sense to do that when there is no new incoming information that is during the night. But there are of course several important steps in this whole process of resaving. So we, the what we have shown is that you should give the beta blocker up to one hour after memory retrieval and not two hours. It's probably because in this in this brief window time window the beta adrenergic receptors are involved but there are of course many other uh, steps in this whole cascade of memory resaving but the actual rewriting probably happens there um i think in the in the lab when we did the fear conditioning and we uh, do not measure freezing what they do in rodents but we measure the starter reflex this is eye blink reflex so um this is a yeah you cannot control this reflex it's a defensive reflex um initiated in the amygdala and that is typically potentiated when people anticipate something threatening so when they are in a fearful state you see an uh, enhanced uh startle pot- uh, reflex, reflex uh, startle potentiation um this uh, defensive fear behavior was not suppressed when we gave propranolol before memory retrieval. So, and so we gave it before, and it was still a fear response, and and it and it apparently targeted the, the beta adrenergic receptors in, in the face where it should. If you do it, if you give propanolol to people that suffer from that, that suffer from a phobia, um, the fear response itself is part of the, the subjective fear is part of the emotional memory. So if you suppress that, I also think that it doesn't work because this information feedbacks and is part of the reactivation of the, of the fear memory. So for that reason, I also would not give it before and would not suppress the fear response in people with fears and phobias.
0: Okay, you said that you can also give beta blockers to people in the morning, but beta blockers have a half-life of about five hours. So that means 12 hours from now, it's, it's almost gone from your system. Why is it that then the memory rewriting that happens at nighttime when you sleep is affected by the beta blockers earlier? Does like? What I'm asking is, like, does the brain, when you're sleeping, does it look at the current? Why does the beta blocker have an effect if it's gone by the time that you're rewriting your memories when you're sleeping?
1: Um. Yeah, because um, the effect of the beta blockers is it's not that it's sort of. I mean, beta blockers. I mean, you also have be, um, it blocks the beta adrenergic receptors. They are in the brain, but also in the heart. So if you take a beta blocker in a situation where you're normally stressful, you, f- you, you feel that because peripherally, you don't have the bodily uh, responses that you normally would have in a stressful situation. Um, but um, by the way, we tested also another beta blocker, NADOLOL, which has the same bodily effect, but does not pass the blood-brain barrier and there it doesn't work. So it's really the central effect in the brain that explains the fear reduction. Um so the beta blocker does not work by suppressing the peripheral the bodily fear response it works because in a specific time window it's it, it it blocks the beta adrenergic receptors and therefore the noradrenaline as a as a neurotransmitter in the brain cannot signal um other cells that are necessary to uh, synthesize the proteins <laughs> which are normally used for the resaving of the memory.
0: Okay, I see. So, And, for us and-,
1: and even though the protein synthesis may take place later, the, the, it does not mean that all these neurobiological processes take place at the same time. They have, in that sense, probably their own time window.
0: I see. So... I'm pretty much wrapped with my questions to Faraz or Peter. Do you have any follow-ups?
2: Um, just maybe, if you could, as my final question, if you could briefly maybe talk about the, the future challenges and limitations in determining the exact role and impact of propranolol, If you want to summarize that um, in terms with regards to fear extinction, that would be great. But other than that, yes, it was it was great.
1: Yeah, we um, we are currently working on so what is important is that there is no i I think i haven't said that so what makes it so difficult is that there is not a single exposure or in the laboratory memory reactivation procedure that always triggers the process of memory reconsolidation so whether a brief exposure destabilizes the memory depends both on the learning history so on the memory representation itself and on the retrieval or on the exposure so this is the interaction between these two and that this makes it quite a challenge it means that for instance a stronger memory requires sometimes a longer exposure than a weaker memory but yeah um but yeah i mean the memory is a theoretical construct so we can only observe the behavior and we cannot say on basis of the behavior this is a strong memory and this is a weak memory and this uh, is for this strong memory you need a one minute exposure and for this um, uh, memory is three minutes so 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 we are actually because of this interaction and in the lab we can really control that and we did so so we change, we can really play around with the learning history in the lab, with the fear conditioning, and then, and then see, okay, we can control. If, if we then expose them to one or two trials, it's, it's, it works. And then to a bit more, then it doesn't work anymore, and we understand why. In clinical practice, when we work with people with a phobia, we know we we nothing about the learning history. There's very often there are many, many experiences or it can be very implicit learning or indirect we don't know so we have to guess what is actually necessary to destabilize the memory and this is what we yeah we try to um to do in in our current research to understand it better so that we can better control when what the boundary and necessary conditions are when we translate our findings to um uh, to clinical practice
3: Doctor, speaking of your current research, where can our audience find out more about you and are there ways that they can support you in your work? And that, I believe, will be our final question.
1: Yeah, well, I can also send my links, of course, to the UVA, the University of Amsterdam, uh, and also the link to the clinic.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Appreciate it.